So actually, Gandhi had been educated in Britain as a lawyer. Uh, is this where his ideas, really, that will bear fruition in South Africa and then later begin to develop? Um, well, some of his ideas, some, he doesn't uh, come to England as a backhanders, he comes with ideas. Uh, he's a Gujarati, uh, don't have to do this in lectures, he's a, he's a Gujarati uh, upper caste Hindu, so he's a vegetarian for example, but when he comes to London, he needs to find other vegetarians. So he is in certain kinds of circles where he's exposed to the kinds of slightly offbeat people in late Victorian society who might be uh, eating a vegetarian diet. He, he revolves in those circles and so he's exposed to interesting new ideas in, in that context, in that milieu. But also, um, this is a time when there are increasing numbers of Indians coming to Britain to study. Um, he's, done, he's a student at UCL, or, um, which is non-denominational, so it particularly attracts people from other parts of the empire. Um, and he is uh, engaging in conversations with liberal politicians, uh, but also other Indians. Um, so, yes, some of his ideas start to develop in London. He also brings ideas with him, but I think the South African moment is, a, is an, uh, an important juncture in his own right. What was it in South Africa that kind of crystallises as it were, um, what will become, in a sense, his life's work? Uh, well, a, a little bit of context to Gandhi in South Africa. Uh, after slavery ends, after slavery is abolished, there's a need in the global economy for cheap labour. And India is a major supplier of this cheap labour in the indentured labour system. And so there is a large number of Indians settled in uh, South Africa, who work as on the sugar plantations and the coffee plantations. Um, there are also people who have either served out their contracts or have moved, uh, have migrated there voluntarily, who are doing quite well. So Gandhi is brought to South Africa on the invitation of uh, the Muslim merchant community. So this is the kind of broad context to you know Gandhi being in South Africa, and what he sees there is people who live in less than ideal circumstances. People there who are there working as indentured laborers under fairly harsh circumstances. So in, in broad terms, he sees injustice. But also, um, he experiences hardship and prejudice himself when he, um, when he first arrives. He is traveling on a train and he is traveling first class. He can afford to travel first class. And this is considered to be uh, an outrage and he's chucked off the train in the middle of the night, and he sits around at the station, and the next day he manages to get on a, a, a stagecoach, but he's forced to sit up front with the driver. So these kind of personal experiences, plus the experiences of the community in which he is, is immersed, kind of crystallise a change. I think he, sees, he starts to become more politically active as a result. Is he also discovering by this stage other writers who've engaged with ways of living. Uh, one obviously thinks of Tagore, but also perhaps Tolstoy. Is this the moment in which he's extending his knowledge? Yes, certainly. So it's, Tolstoy is a vegetarian, for example, but he becomes a vegetarian after Gandhi moves to South Africa. Uh, in I think it's 1898, he proclaims his vegetarianness, um, his vegetarianism. And he reads Tolstoy in South Africa. We know that he reads Tolstoy in South Africa. I don't know if he read Tolstoy when he was in London. Um, so that's one of the writers that he's reading. Thoreau is another. Um, 
he's also engaging with Ruskin at that moment, um, if not earlier as well. Ruskin is a kind of a romantic idealist who um, is, his vision for England is, and his vision for civilization is one where, uh, is not an industrial vision. So it's a kind of romantic, rural um, vision um, where the artisan is uh, valued um, so he's, re he's engaging with these ideas. And, and as I said, South Africa is a kind of important moment where he really, we, start, we know that he starts to mm. engage with these, these writers. And William Morris too, presumably. Mm, he might have been exposed to Morris earlier in Britain. Mm. Where did the idea of passive resistance, to use a phrase that I know is a, a problematic one, if you say it doesn't translate Satyagraha, but where, where did this idea of passive resistance to oppression come from? It is uh, an idea that's in circulation before um, and is, is a, a strategy that's employed before Gandhi starts his Satyagrahas. Um, so I think in 1907 in London, um, Herbert Spencer is encouraging the Society for Home Students, encouraging Indians to engage in passive resistance. So it's not entirely new. Um, but I, I think for Gandhi, it's passive resistance doesn't accurately capture what he is engaged in and what he wants to engage in. So I think he doesn't think that um, the Satyagraha is particularly passive. Right? It take, for him, it takes an enormous, um, it's an enormously moral position. It requires a huge amount of internal will. Um, you have to... Uh, accept whatever punishment is meted out to you, for example, and that's not passive. Um, so he, what he does is he starts to um, modify those ideas. He founds a newspaper called the Indian Opinion. When you go and see the production, you'll see newspapers everywhere. It's, uh, it's part of the, the beauty of this particular production. And he actually corresponds, and one of his readers suggests the conjugation of satya and agraha, of truth and this force um, and that's where he, the, the term actually develops, um, through, this, through the newspaper. The newspaper and his readership is very important to the development of his ideas. What do you think he had achieved in South Africa before he decides to return to India? Um, a lot and a little in the short term and the long term. Um, his, I hear a historian here. Oh, <laughs> don't, don't believe everything they say about us. Um, some of his satyagrahas are successful. So um, this, uh, uh, what you see in Act 2 is generally considered a success. The second satyagraha is about the poll tax, not so successful. The third, uh, uh, one of the later satyagrahas is about uh, women's rights and rights for indentured laborers. That's more successful. His kind of campaigns for restricting for changing the restrictions on immigration are not successful. So it's mixed. There are some, there are some successes, there are some things that are less successful. Um, and of course that balances up with the long term, which is uh, something that happens after Philip Glass writes this opera, which is the end of apartheid. You know, this, this story that you see here comes full circle in the 80s and 90s in the end of apartheid. So there is that kind of long-term achievement in South Africa as well as the short-term story that you see um, in the, over three acts. Why does he decide to return to India? He's in South Africa for 21 years. Maybe that's why. But we certainly know he's invited to return. He has achieved some success in South Africa. 
And um, this is a moment, so he returns in 1914. This is a moment where Indian politics is becoming more um, divided. And he's invited back by a, a figure called Gokhale. So the Indian political landscape, I mean, this happens slightly earlier, it happens in uh, the early 1900s, but it's the, the, the political elite who are, are part of the International Congress are becoming increasingly divided between moderates, who are kind of liberal, slightly um, Western, often Western-educated, um, and Indians who are in, on Congress who are more of an extremist persuasion. So there is, in 1905, there is the Japanese defeat of the Russians, and this is a signal moment across the, the non-Western world, particularly for colonized peoples, that actually an Asian power can defeat a European power. There is no, the idea that Asians are inferior to Europeans has been challenged and overturned. And so this is a moment where from the Ottoman Empire all the way through to India and beyond, uh, Asians are, are pressing more for, um, for political rights and political freedom. And some people think that the way to do that is to, to press this through the political system. Others think that actually, you know, more violent, more extreme measures might be, might be necessary. And there becomes in India this, what's known as the cult of the bomb. So there are a number of extremists who try and put bombs on the viceroy's train or um, there are even um, shootings. And one of the things that happens when Gandhi travels to London before he returns to South Africa, is there's a, a shooting in London. And he writes Hinswaraj in his famous texts in um, South Africa. He starts writing it, I think, on the ship back to South Africa from London. As a statement against this kind of violent extremism that's creeping up into politics. And I think by 1914, there's a, there's a real divide in Indian politics. And, I, and someone like Gokhale needs uh, a man who can... Um, uh, provide an alternative. Mm -hmm. Indeed, thank you very much. Stay with us. Um, our next guests are the tenor, Paul Hopwood, who's covering the role of Gandhi in this revival tonight, and Murray Hipkin, who, as I've said, is a member of English National Opera's music staff and who is the assistant conductor on this revival. Would you please welcome Paul Hopwood and Murray Hipkin. <laughs> Paul, thank you. you. One of the things about these talks is you have to uh, you speak for your supper before you're allowed to sing. Um, very <laughs> quickly, how on earth do you learn a role in a language that I doubt that you did at school and you may not know very well? Well, I mean, the main answer to that is that um, I'm doing that the whole time. <laughs> so, uh, you, you do opera in Czech, you do opera in French, Italian, German, Russian. Um, so... I suppose you, you apply the same skills that you'd, you'd apply to learning an, an opera in Russian. The real, the, the trick with this one is the fact that nobody really speaks Sanskrit, so you can get away with quite a lot. Um, and um, without wishing to give away too many trade secrets, I think if, um, the key is to recognise sounds that, uh, that are the same in English. Um, I don't know if 
uh, there was a thing doing the rounds on the internet a while ago. It was Pavarotti singing La Donna Mobile, and uh, it had sub subtitles that said Elephants, yeah. And it sounded exactly <laughs> like that. Um, and it's the same with this. You sort of, you, there, are, there are bits where, for example, there's, there's a bit that definitely sounds like three Parker van over there. Um, <laughs> and if you, yeah, if you don't somehow hang it on something that makes sense, it's, you're in trouble. Did you, have you found, as you've been working on this, you've had to jettison traditional ideas about what opera is? Um, yeah, I mean, to be honest, I, I don't... I hope I don't ever come to any opera with a set of ideas that I want to apply. Mm. Uh, so you always come with an open mind. But it is it is very different. There's no question about it. There's, there's very little narrative, for example. Uh, there's very little, uh, if any, relationship between characters on stage. It's very still. Um, it, it's sort of ducks paddling on the water but you don't see the legs going so it is it is very different so you do have to get yourself in a different frame of mind so one can't speak of characterization in any conventional sense about this piece no no i mean if you're, you're you might be playing gandhi but you're really not playing gandhi or what you're doing is you're sort of embodying a series of ideas to be honest and you know i wouldn't want to pretend to be gandhi anyway to be honest it would involve quite a lot of shaving <laughs> so, so then, what are the dramatic challenges of the role? Um, so, so, the main dramatic challenge, I think, is very different to normal. Um, it's about concentration, to be honest. You have to main, maintain concentration throughout. Um, and it's not the sort of concentration where normally you're thinking, right, I have to, I have to somehow feel this relationship to somebody else on stage. It's this sort of concentration that has to read as just a sort of a focused mind at all times. And that is, that is strange and, and awkward. And you'll see it tonight. Toby does it very, very well indeed. Has, has Toby been, Toby Spencer, who's singing tonight, um, has he been there to, to offer advice and wisdom and, um, and a helping we, hand? <laughs> so we, we share a singing teacher. So I bump into him occasionally in the corridor of my singing teacher's house. Mm. Um, and I think we do, I, yeah... Some mutual consolation as to how awkward it is, I think, is the closest he's got to advice. But uh, yeah, no, he's certainly uh, yeah, he's he's uh, offered a few a few kind words. Yeah. As a production, it's, it's it's wonderfully but extraordinarily complicated. Different set of stage challenges than other operas that you've worked on. I mean, what actually happens on the stage makes your life more difficult. Um, not really. I mean, there are a lot of. You find yourself doing the most extraordinary things in opera, you know. Um, but it, in this one, for example, the skills that we call them the skills, the guys who, the actors really, uh, do the trickiest stuff. Uh, they're on stilts, they're flying, they're doing all sorts of amazing things with puppets. And I'd love to be doing that, but unfortunately, <laughs> that's their job. Um, so, the yeah, the sort of challenges dramatically for, for us really are, are more about achieving the mental space, to be honest, and you know, just sort of keeping this calm throughout. And the musical challenges? Musical challenges, um, memory is the first thing. It's a phenomenally difficult score to learn. It's like learning phone numbers um, because the patterns are so repetitive. Uh, and he doesn't do you any favours, Philip Glass. The words never repeat in the same way. Uh, there's all, you know, the patterns are very complicated, very sort of... Uh, obscure at times, so you, you're you're constantly going through, thinking right, that's the three five one section, and that's the four, you know, and, and the time signature is changing the whole time. Um, vocally, weirdly, um, it doesn't go very high at all for the tenor. I think there's 
twice it goes above the stave, which is extremely unusual, but it does bang away at uh, the passaggio, which is that, that yeah. section of the voice that all tenors fear. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, yeah, it's constantly just, you know, mallet to the throat. And, and as you've been doing this, as you've been working on this, has your admiration for Glass as a musician, as a composer, changed, increased? Um, I'm not sure I had any strong opinions about Glass before I got to his operas, to be honest. Um, he, it, it is, it's just very, very different. Um, whenever you tackle anything new, um, you have to convince yourself that it's the best thing you've ever heard. Otherwise, you're mm. not going to enjoy the process. It's as simple mm. as that. Mm. And sometimes you come away afterwards and you think, actually, yeah, in the cold light of day, really didn't enjoy that very much at all. Um, that's not true with Glass. There's this sort of... He has this extraordinary habit of getting under your skin. Yeah. Um, you know, and as you listen to the music, you know, first of all, you start thinking, well, this is, you know, I want it to change. And then there's a subtle, there's a subtle change somewhere, and it has extraordinary emotional impact, and that happens throughout the piece. Uh, so once you inhabit his world, it's, it's very moving, very powerful. What are you going to, Paul, what are you going to sing for us? And what, Murray, are you going right, to so it's fairly awkward finding an R. <laughs> It's not the sort of piece with our ears, to be honest. Um, so we thought we'd do the section at the end, or near the end. Um, we know it as Ugnir, <laughs> which is just what it means. So it's Act 3. It's Act 3. Um, Gandhi is left on his own, um, and it's this sort of prayer, really. It's a contemplation at the end uh, in, the, in the section uh, called King. So you've got Martin Luther King at the back, uh, slow-moing his speech, which is extraordinary. Um, and meanwhile, Gandhi is delivering this sort of prayer of contemplation. He does it cross-legged. Um, yes. And okay. Mozart, it ain't. Glass, it is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
Paul Hopwood and Murray Hipkin. Thank you both very much indeed. Our final guest this evening is Elizabeth Yardini, who is the producer of this current revival of Sasha Goha. Please welcome Elizabeth Yardini. <laughs> Elizabeth, did you choose Satyagraha or did Satyagraha choose you? It chose me and I'm incredibly happy it did. <laughs> and how did it come about? What um, when we organize our seasons, we're three producers and there's so many shows we have to divide the work between each other. Um, I am sort of the new producer around and uh, the two other producers had already worked on Satyagraha and for the third revival, they thought it would be a good idea for me to work on it. Um, what exactly does the producer do in an opera house? It's such an umbrella term. It, um, in opera specifically, what's wonderful is that you work with people who are experts at what they do. Either it's a costume supervisor, a lighting technician, a conductor. Um, and all these people, what I love to think is that they speak different languages. And um, the producer is the translator. The producer is not fluent in... I'm not a lighting supervisor. But I know enough to translate that information to someone else. Mm. Uh, and then harmonize everyone to create a show in the end. And, and how familiar were you with the opera from previous productions here? So when I started ENO, uh, we had that season, uh, the second revival, and uh, I did not know the work of Feldglas Glass before, maybe um, film scores. Um, in the south of France, he's not performed that much, he should. Uh, and I have to say, it was completely life-changing. And now, um, Satyagra and Akhenaten have become some of my favorite mm. operas. Um, presumably, one of the great things about a revival in a house mm. like this is it gives you all a chance, led by you, mm -hmm. to rethink things, to think again about it. Absolutely. It's not... Um, operas are very organic. There's always something to think about, especially Satyagraha. Uh, you'll see it's so incredible in terms of staging. I admire stage managers a lot when I see things like this. And especially when a director comes back to work on it, which is not always the case, and which is the case with the, this production. Uh, Philip McDermott um, worked on the revival, and it's always, especially because he's great at listening to singers, and it's the first time for the cast is the first time for the conductor, mm. Karen Kamensek, who's incredible. It's her first time mm. conducting it. So everyone comes with their ideas, especially on such a show, which there's so much happening internally. Mm. And film was really good at listening to all this, of course, <coughs> reviving the show, but also feeding into all these new people's It's very interesting, given that there are so many new people, mm -hmm. conductor, Toby, singing Gandhi, and so it's really, in fact, a new show, isn't it? Exactly. It is, and also new stage managers who have so much to do and, you know, all these cues. It's, no, it's quite incredible. It's very live every time. The thing that I think has always amazed us, having seen it before, is the range of theatre skills that are employed. Um, uh, flying sets, puppets, projections. Mm -hmm. I mean, can you give us an idea of just how difficult all of that stagecraft is? Well, I hope you don't see that. <laughs> I hope that for you it all looks extremely smooth and wonderful and simple, but it's weeks of work. Um, this is, it's interesting because what is opera? And it is a total work of art. And Satyagraha is a total work of art because there's the music, there's the singing, but there's puppetry, there are video projections, uh, acrobats, uh, choreography. Um, the singers are wonderful. And a lot is happening, as Paul said, internally. And the singers have to convey this. But there is a balance between stillness and movement. Uh, they're the skills ensemble, and skills is really what they do because they are puppeteers, acrobats, 
um, and actors, and this is all the skills that you'll see tonight. Does someone keep a record of what's happened in previous shows? What's that record like? Uh, so it's called a show bible, and it's the most important thing in my life <laughs> uh, when the revival is involved. Of course, we have video recordings, but that doesn't say much of what goes on backstage. We don't film everyone involved. It would, you know, that would be impossible. So everything is written down. The director, the staff directors, especially the stage managers, will have written down every single cue. The second, the note at which someone goes on stage or does anything is written down. Who keeps that book? Uh, we have stage manager scores, we have a room full of them now at the age where you have to digitalize everything. We have very kind people who spend hours scanning. <laughs> this. And, and will you produce another Bible as a result of this revival? Yes. And that will be an account of what you've done with all of them. Exactly. Tell us a little bit about Julian Crouch, the designer's mm -hmm. sets. What, what are the sets that we're going to see? What's quite incredible is that he used a lot of things from everyday life. So you will see um, a lot of newspapers, a lot, a lot of newspapers, but also baskets, um, iron sort of structures, and it's quite incredible everything you can do. It makes you think, oh, I could build that set, but no. Um, and video projections, the acoustic is quite incredible. You'll see that it's a sort of um, semicircle that allows for the sound from um, the singers and the orchestra to completely go towards you, and that's quite incredible. That's really when a designer understands music and how to serve it very well. And, and these materials, in a sense, have an identity mm -hmm. with Gandhi South Africa, presumably. Oh, really, it's really to convey the idea of a simpler way of life, to you know, non-materialistic, all the things you can do when you don't have a choice, when you just use whatever is around you. And you were saying before we started, you've been having trouble sourcing newspapers. Tell us a bit about that. Yes. So um, the show is timeless. The music is timeless. But the props used in the show are not. And they're costing me a lot of money. <laughs> well, not that much money. You will see that newspapers are, are very, very important. And although the show doesn't look like it's set in any particular time or place, newspapers, that, that sort of visual is very important. And the newspapers have to look from like they're from 100 years ago, which is difficult because I don't know if you noticed, but newspapers are much smaller now and obviously have um, color advertisements. And it would cost us a lot of money to print those, so we tried to source them. Now we, find, we still find uh, big newspapers in black and white in Germany, but I'm afraid that at the next revival, we'll have to print them ourselves. And, and you can't recycle your newspapers. You will see what happens to them. It's, I'm very mad. But <laughs> all the things that are done with the newspapers I have to buy. <laughs> Some people have argued that in a way Sashigaha is more an oratorio than an opera. What do you think? So I agree and completely disagree with this at the same time. I can see how that's, that could be the case, but... Um, first, you would take away all the fun of a producer <laughs> if it was the uh, concert version. And also, there is drama. So although, as you said, there isn't much happening between characters, but between the characters and the audience, a lot happens. Even in stillness, there is a way to stage stillness. Philip McDermott taught me that. And the skills as well. I mean, it would take away quite a lot of the total work of art that Satyagraha is. How do you account for the fact this is, I think, the third revival? Yes. Um, it's had enormous appeal. Look at the number of people who've joined it's us this evening wanting to know more. <laughs> How do you account for the effect this opera has? Um, it's everything. It's the music, first, that is, you know, uh, very ritualistic and meditative, and I think it feels very good to go 
for three hours and listening to something that is so contemplative. And of course, the themes, because when we talk about um, non-violent forms of resistance, there's a word none, which makes you think that violence is the norm. And therefore, non-violence is what we all have to work on. And that will never end. So and I cry every single time at the end of the show, mm. although I've seen it so many times, because, what, I mean, I won't give it away, but I mean, you sort of did. <laughs> <laughs> but it really shows you the future of what um, Gandhi worked on. And because of that figure of Martin Luther King, you can think about after and after and after. I remember after the very first performances, mm. um, just lurking in the foyer, waiting for somebody. And, and someone came out and said, the extraordinary thing about this opera is that it makes you think, firstly, things could be different, but it makes you feel better about things. I keep saying it's music and it's a show that's good for the soul. And that's really, really what it is. Elizabeth, thank you very much. You. And a thank you to all our guests this evening for being with us. Thank you very much indeed. We shall be here for each of the productions uh, this season. The next one um, is Ilanthi, a new production. We shall be here and hope you'll be able to join us. And can I ask you once again if you can make your way down the stairs to the bars below. The Circle Bar, I'm sure, is open now as fast as you can. Thank you very much for being with us. <laughs>